Welcome to Business Book Talk, the best place to discover great business books. Bob Garlick has talked to over 400 authors, and his questions and comments always get you the best information about the book, the author, and the ideas behind each book. So let's see who Bob's talking to this week. Hey everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got good authority, and I've got Jonathan Raymond with me today. How to become the leader your team is waiting for. And that is a very telling statement on the cover of the book. Uh, why do you say that? Well, I think the first uh, the first problem that a lot of leaders, uh, my, myself included, leaders and managers have, is we don't realize that our team is waiting. And uh, we think that there's, we, we, it's easy to attribute what we see around us to all sorts of other causes. Uh, and I, and I, myself, I never really appreciated the degree to which my team was waiting for me, not so much to say different things and not even really to do different things, but to approach leading and managing them from a different place. And so that's really what the book is about. Do you think that um, people that have a leader above them are looking at that person for the vision, for the for the energy, for the permission to do what they think needs to be done, but they just need that authority figure above them to say, you know what, you're doing a fantastic job. Yes, I love where you're going. Go and kill it. I think I think that's part of it. I think that uh, what what a lot of leaders miss and what a lot of managers are really craving, and that goes back to that first thing around, you know, what are people hungry for? Is you know the simplest way to say it is is what they're looking for is a role model. But if we if we peel that onion a little bit, they're looking for the cues of how 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 am I treated as a manager? You know, like so if I'm working for you, how do I how am I treated in the small spaces of the day, uh, in the in between moments? Do you you know do you talk over me when I'm trying to bring up a good idea? Uh, do you support me in in stretching out and you know having you know going into places that you may not have thought of? And if I get that kind of modeling, if I get that kind of permission from the person who I'm reporting to, then I'm going to turn around and feel a lot more comfortable, a lot more confident, and a lot more secure to do that for the for my team. And so I think it's some of it is the feeling like, and you know, we talk about different types of leaders in the book, and maybe we'll get into some of those archetypes. But a lot of leaders, well, let's say some leaders are good at the vision thing, right? We're good at seeing the future and hey, guys, here's where we're going. Uh, other leaders are better at sort of creating a good vibe and people feeling like this is a collegial work environment. Uh, other leaders tend to focus more on the craft or the specifics of getting the details right. And all of those leaders have good qualities. Those are all lovely, wonderful things to, to bring to your team. But there's a whole other element, which is how do, those, how do those qualities, how do those strengths tend to disempower our teams? And that's a conversation that I don't think we've been talking enough about. Mm. Well, I wanted to dial it back a little bit there because you you did say, you know, there's different types of leaders and there's different types of companies that need specific leaders to grow or to consolidate or, or whatever. And I think a lot of companies, they fail in that sense. It's like, oh, we've got our leader and we're going to have the same guy forever. It's it's not that way it, it, with, with larger companies or companies that are growing uh, aggressively or companies that ha are are. Uh, maturing, you need a different type of leader in place. Do you think a lot of companies um, can't make that tough decision to say, you know, you've been awesome, you've got us here, but you know what, we don't need you anymore. Can you step back or leave and we need to bring a new guy in? I think, I, you know, it, sometimes it happens, but I think, you know, that's where you get into some really tight emotional spaces. And, you know, having been there myself, both on the 
the guy who uh, you know came in and said, "Hey, we need to go in another direction," and also being the guy who was there and realizing, you know what, I'm not the right guy for this job anymore. You know, especially in you know family businesses, you know, smaller and even small mid-sized businesses. You know, there's you know, it's not ego. It's just you know, it's your baby, right? Whether you're a man or a woman, this is your baby, and it's very hard to let go of. And so I think putting some of those, you know, having some of those conversations early on about you know, what stage are we in? Okay. And then what's going to happen at the end of that stage? So people can feel a sense of pride and accomplishment. So let's say I'm there for three years. Okay. Well, I accomplished my three-year goal and now it's time for me to turn it over to somebody else. And, um, you know, and I think that, you know, it's so interesting in the, in, you know, in the public sector and government and you see turnover there too, uh, you know, that, what that does to a culture when there isn't sensitivity to leadership change and the pace of leadership change, uh, that can be really problematic. Do you think the concept of of leadership, well, the concept that the, the pace of uh, leadership changes has uh, increased these days, or is it basically the same that's, that's been going in the last 30, 40 years? I, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure what the data is, but I think it, it seems to be much faster. Uh, it seems to be. I mean, it's certainly that way in the public sector. Uh, you know, if you look at, you know, there was one study around like school superintendents. Right, their average tenure is fifteen months. Wow. In, in North America, right? And it's like, how do you get anything really, how do you think long term if you're, if you know, or the data says, you know, you've got basically one school year to make changes. And I think in the private sector, you know, the, the requirements, and again, I think it changes with the size of the business, but, you know, these days, a couple of years as a CEO, it starts to feel like a long time. And, you know, unless you're really a, you know, dominant shareholder and, and, and you, nobody can push you out. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think that it, it it does create weird incentives, right? It does create, you know, it's just like, you know, you can have the best of intentions, but when you become a public company, you know, you have different, you have a different mandate, different things are going on there. Um, so I do think it's, I think pace overall, right? The, you know, there's a, some amazing data out now about burnout and, you know, 72% of uh, senior executives are feeling, you know, some semblance of burnout in one degree or another. Um, you know, the pace of our world, I'm sure nothing new to your podcast. And the question is, how do we deal with that? You know, how do we, you know, and that, that's that's some of what the book is about is how to how to how to understand that level of pace and burnout and, and what steps we can take. Well, let's dig a little bit into the book. I mean, it's broken up into these three sections. Is it a type of book that you can jump around in as like, oh, you know, I, I really want like what they're saying uh, or introducing in, in part two, personal growth at work. I think that's the part I'm just going to read. Or should they kind of read from beginning to end? When I was uh, when I was talking with my publisher early on, he said, "You know, it, it's a business book, even though I know it's about leadership and relationships. So you got to make it so that people can jump in at any chapter, because that's how people read business books. So, so that's how it is. You can jump in at any point, and it will. Each chapter is kind of a self-contained idea, and I really tried to give a lot of dialogue for people to implement those ideas and and really take something from a chapter and go and try it. You know, and and it's you know." It doesn't take itself too seriously, this book. I mean, it's got some great, great titles. I mean, the the intro to, to part three, more Yoda, less Superman. That says so much in in, in such a succinct way. Um, do you feel that, and, and I want to dig down into this, but like more Yoda, less Superman. Do you really think that management style, regardless whether you're you're building a company or uh, basically consolidating. Uh, do you think that approach or that overall strategy of thinking more and less shoot from the hip management style is more in vogue these days? Uh, I don't in, in vogue. Did you say? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, re-emerging. I, I think it's re-emerging. Yeah. I think that it, I think it's re-emerging out of necessity. Is that you know you you literally can't keep track of all the things that you're technically supposed to. It's it's humanly impossible. And so I think what I what I experienced and what I see a lot of ex- leaders experiencing is the limits of Superman or Superwoman type leadership because you literally can't do it. It's impossible. You have 47 apps and you know 20. You know it's it's impossible. And so you need to be able to step back and and decide, you know, is this work that I actually need to be doing? If it is, am I the one to be doing it or should I be giving that to somebody else? If they're doing it, how am I going to track their results in a way that's that's going to create less time for me, not more time? And so that that shift from, you know, disempowering leadership, which to me, Superman is a highly dysfunctional leader, right? It's, you know, swooping around the globe or, the, or wherever, you know, constantly solving problems. It's not a fun way to live. It's not a fun way to lead. And so I do think that 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 Yoda style is is reemerging. Well, you know, keeping with the Superman thing, if you if you are a comic book fan, if you've read a lot of his comics, he's a deeply troubled guy. I mean, he's a guy that's having second thoughts about should I be doing this stuff and should I be a superhero and and has real big relationship problems. Do you think that the Superman archetype business manager or business leader has a similar? problem where and, and and it's a known phenomenon that people that are in those positions are terrified that one day somebody's going to come in and say you're a big fake get the heck out yeah 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 and i think that's the you know there there's a, one of the one of my lighthearted moments in the book is i call it the existential pit of leadership despair <laughs> when you uh, when you actually kind of pull superman's fingers off of your leadership life uh it can be really uncomfortable you know that people talk about the imposter syndrome and you know a lot of us have have made a career out of getting stuff done and of always being the one to have the answer and solve the problem. And so it can be very, very difficult to, to pull that back. And there, and there's a real feeling underneath that's like, well, if I don't do that, what is my value here? You know, I'm going to be found out. And there's a, there's an incredible pot of gold at the end of that rainbow, but nevertheless, uh, there, there are some uncomfortable steps along the way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, letting go and delegating and then learning how to manage a delegation is a massive growth uh, thing that I think that not too many managers that get into higher management ever really grasp or ever, ever really believe in. That's right. And these days, you know, a lot of the companies I work with are kind of early stage and even startup. And, you know, so I work with some companies and I'm working with one company that's been around for, I don't know, I think 120 years or something. But the, but a lot of the companies that are finding me are, you know, they've been around for three years and or five years and they have managers who have never managed a team before. Right. So the, so senior leader is 27. Right. And this is what's happening in the workplace, especially, you know, on the West Coast, a lot of young emerging dynamic companies. And, you know, you have senior leaders who are in their late 20s. I'm working with one company that has 75 employees and the oldest person there is 31. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and they're doing they're doing they're doing good. You know, there's, there's a lot of good things happening. But the but the gap between, you know, middle managers, if you've been around for 40 years, of course, you're going to pick up some bad habits, but you've also learned some things along the way. And so a lot of what a lot of the teaching I do and training I do is for people who, you know, they this is either their first team or their second team, or they're the CEO of a company that's com- come out of that initial stage where they could shoot from the hip. And now they have to do things more methodically and they don't want to kill that spirit. They don't want to kill the vibe that they've created. But if they keep doing it the way they're doing, they see everything going sideways. And so there's a there's a massive skills gap out there 
when it comes to management. And if I can do one thing, I want to make management sexy again, because I think, as you said, it's an enormous growth moment. It was an enormous, enormous growth moment in my life. And I didn't know how to do it when I was the CEO of a global company. I didn't know how to manage. To me, management is, uh, it's, it's way sexier than leadership once you actually understand what's really going on there and the interrelationship between people and systems and process and personal growth and spirituality and you name it. Well, let's, let's you know, I, I want to dig down into management because I, I think it's a totally misunderstood word. It's a misunderstood concept. And you did touch on some, some key, key, key things. I mean, with, with great knowledge, a lot of it is the simplification of something you thought was super complex. Do you think management is perceived um, in the wrong way and that's why people don't know how to manage? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think most people, whether they admit it or not, what they're actually doing is supervising. There's very little. Supervising is kind of a dirty word around around these parts of Refound. Not not that if you have if you have the title called supervisor, it doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> but but supervision that's what kids need, right? Adults, fully functioning adults, should not need supervision. They need guidance. They need accountability. They need mentoring. But supervision is something else entirely. If you're if you're in a position where you're constantly checking in on people or they're constantly coming by your office asking you for questions that you know that they should know the answer to or you're constantly mediating interpersonal conflicts on the team, you know, that's supervision. That's not what I would call management at this next level. And that's not the kind of leadership, leadership management, you know, we can use these terms. They, they, they have a lot of overlap, obviously. But a leadership-oriented management, we could say. If you find yourself in those positions, and there's a you know free quiz on the site that you can that you can kind of gauge where where am I on that scale? Am I am I actually managing? Because I think there's a huge misconception around that, and of course it starts with the C level. What are the expectations that they have of managers? And I talk with so many CEOs these days, and they, they so many of them say to me, they say, Jonathan, I get it. I know that my managers are the linchpin of this organization. I know that I I don't have that much influence. Uh, over most of the people who work here, even though I get to, you know, stand up in the, you know, in the big meetings, uh, and it's the managers that are keeping this place alive and are going to take us to that next level. So I think there's an awareness, but there's a, but as we talked about before, there's a big skills gap, and we're not rewarding the right kind of managers. We're rewarding the people with technical talent and saying, oh, well, that person's a good coder. Let's put them in charge of a product development team. Whoa, whoa, what what skills have they shown you that they know how to? manage a team of people and get them to collaborate. So we're making really bad decisions uh, at the C-level in terms of who we promote. And I think that's part of why uh, there's such a there's such a, a big gap and, and so many misconceptions about what management is. Well, you know, you bring up a very good point that a highly skilled technical person, whether it's a carpenter or a coder, they have a, a, a talent, an innate talent. They've got something that they love doing, they enjoy doing it, and then taking that away from them or having them do stuff that they really don't want to do, as in like management, taking them away from their, their perfect position isn't a very good move psychologically if you're if you're an HR person. Why do people do that? It's like, oh, he's really good at code, so let's make him manage manage this team. That's a huge disconnect and, and um, misunderstanding by upper management. Is that the core of the problem? It's one of them. I mean, I think a lot of times these days, especially in highly competitive markets, people do it out of desperation because somebody leaves. You know, it's easier than ever for anyone who ha who's talented, a coder, says, you know what, I'm tired of this place. I'm going to go start my own thing. 
right? So you don't want to lose your star coder or your star marketer or your star salesperson. And so you make, as a result, you make bad choices or there's a high risk, let's say, of making bad choices to get people to stay. And so what looks like a promotion, are you going to put in, put this person, man or woman, you know, in charge of this team? Psychologically, they might think, wow, that's, I, I should want to do that. And, but they don't, they may really not want to do that, but they still want autonomy. They still want growth. And so I think that's, it's part of the problem is that we don't, we don't think about the long-term implications. And I think, you know, some people are getting smarter about that, but it's very difficult. You know, I talk with a lot of hiring managers and people in charge of acquiring talent. It's very, very difficult to find people who have enough of the technical savvy to be able to manage that team because you have to be able to understand the work that that team is doing, but at the same time have the right temperament uh, to be able to bring a team of team people together. Challenge equals growth. That's just a note I put down there. Do you think that is something that isn't being given to people as a reward? Here is a new challenge for you because we think you can do it. And the person enjoys the challenge because they, they get growth. They're, they're forced to learn something new because they, they have to. Absolutely. I think there are two kinds. There are the, there are the purely professional challenges, which I think are great. Uh, and I, don't, and I, I wouldn't call myself an expert on those. The, the place where, where my work is is on the personal challenge. And to me, this is what this is the, at least from my perspective, the missing ingredient in our work culture where we, we have not yet tasked ourselves as managers and leaders to give people a personal challenge, a personal growth challenge. Here's how you can show up differently at work. And if you do, I'm, I'm going to get better work out of you. That's a given. But you're going to become more the kind of person that you want to become. And those are the cultures that, that I see people wanting to work at. The professional challenges, those are wonderful. We want autonomy. We want creativity. We want to say in the decision-making process. We want to be res respected as a stakeholder, even if, even if we're not a you know, top-level decision maker. But it's that personal element. It's, does, is this place meaningful to me? Do, am I becoming a better version of myself by working here? Because if I am, I'm going to stay a really long time. And if I'm not, I'm already looking. Do you think that uh, fear of failure is, is another thing that's causing people not to be their best? Absolutely. I think fear of failure, fear of being exposed, uh, fear of being embarrassed, fear of being shamed, fear of being judged. You know, I, I, I work with people, you know, really close colleagues of mine. And, you know, we have really, you know, at ReFound, we have very open, honest conversations. We strive to be a, a model, very small, but a model organization for some of these, some of these ways of working. And, and, you know, we talk about all the time how difficult it is to share with a colleague, you know, I, I, you know, one of my colleagues went and did this presentation recently and she said to me, she said, you know, I, I, I hesitated to talk with you about this, but I, I just don't think it went that well. And, you know, and we had a conversation about her insecurity and her anxiety around telling the boss uh, that, you know, it didn't go that well. And maybe we don't get that client or, you know, and it turns out, you know, we're always our worst critic. It turns out they, they love the talk. Uh, but but she was able to share that with me, but not without challenging, right? It was very easy to default. I would do the same thing, right? It's very easy to default to well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna put a little a little spin on it, put a little bit of polish, a little bit of filter, and what would the world of work be if we didn't do that? Hmm. Hmm. Let's go back to your title, good authority. What's the what's the difference between leadership and authority? We've kind of gone over it a little bit, but you know. 
that's a huge word word authority it, it, it's you know we're talking about fear the person that comes into the room that has authority has a large stick do you think authority is not as scary a word as people think it is uh, it's, I think it's both. I think it's a very scary word, but it doesn't have to be. And that's why I called the book Good Authority, because, you know, most of us have uh, not, uh, you know, warm and fuzzy feelings when it comes to authority in general, right? Sure. We may have had some positive authority figures, maybe, you know, some parents that we loved or one of our parents who, you know, really we looked up to, or maybe we had some positive experiences. But, you know, if we look around our world, our world is not filled with authority figures who model a way of being that we feel that we feel really good about mostly. And so the 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 thing about authority is when the CEO walks in the room, the CEO has the authority, has that big stick, but but does the CEO hold it that way? And that's what the book is about is that we have to get conscious about the fact that we we're I'm not suggesting that we undo that. The CEO that if it's their company or they're in charge, they have a set of responsibilities. They're exposed to data that nobody else is. But there's a lot that goes with that role. But do you consciously embrace yourself as an authority or do what, what a lot of leaders are trying to do these, do you try to pretend that it doesn't exist? And that's where so many leaders, they're trying to be nice. They're trying to be one of the team. They're trying to, oh, I don't have an office. I'm just on the floor with everybody else. That may be, that may be nice for you, but I don't, no, I don't think it's so nice for everybody else around you because they're kind of wondering well, but he has or she has everybody's paycheck, and I hope he knows that. And there's a there's a there's a massive shift underway from my perspective. We went from not that it's not out there anymore, but old school command and control authoritarian models. We have a really good example of right now of how that model is still alive and well in the world. Uh, so we've got authoritarianism that we know that exists. We know that there are many organizations, public and private, that still are built on authoritarian models. Uh, in the last 20 years, 30 years, we've seen a shift in a lot of organizations going to try to flat models, you know, thinking of holacracy, other, so one of many, where we've said, hey, that old authoritarian model is a problem. Let's try, what if we're all on the same team, right? What if we're in, what if we're in circles? What if, what if we don't have those kinds of things? And I think what we're seeing now is a, a, a gradual, that was, that was one swing over to one extreme pendulum. <laughs> And people are seeing how complicated that organization is and how problematic it is because there are people in charge. No matter how much you try to pretend there aren't people in charge, there are people in charge. And so what good authority is is an attempt to find that middle ground that says, yes, there are people in charge. There are people with more responsibility who get paid more, who have data that other people don't. But the way they relate with that reality is different. They don't relate it from a command and control place. They relate it from a mentoring place, from a coaching place that says, hey, I'm here. I'm not perfect, but I'm a few steps ahead on the path uh, in terms of the way we do things here. And I've got some feedback for you. Or can we have a conversation? Mm. You know, I, I've had uh, mentoring jotted down here for, for about 20 minutes. And really, that, I think, is the linchpin. It's the ability for uh, to have the authority to be able to put your foot down and shock and awe if needed, but not actually doing that to get the point across. It's more, hey, just like you said, I've noticed you're struggling here. Are there any resources that I can bring to bear? Is there anything that I can do from my position to to help you get over this bump or through this wall or whatever? That type of, it's almost like a father figure or a mother figure in an organization. You're there to help. Sure, you're running the company and you're, you're doing the big wowy stuff that nobody else really wants to do. And 
the other side of it is you still are able to sit down with somebody and they're not terrified that you're sitting down with them because it, it's like if the boss walks into your if, if a, an authoritative style boss walks into a room, everybody's like, uh-oh, what's happening? If, if he's coming in here, somebody's going to get yelled at. We're all in trouble. And that's the same type of fear you have when you're younger and maybe you've been drinking a little bit and you're underage and you see a cop. It's like, oh my God, I'm going to get busted. Suddenly that uh, authoritative figure who has a gun, which is the biggest I can put my foot down device anybody could have is there and suddenly you're focusing on it and you're worried and you get all anxiety based. Now, if you've been, uh, haven't been doing all that stuff and you need some help, you can go up to exactly that same person and say, hey, I'm a little lost here. How do I get to such and such train station or whatever? And there suddenly it's like, oh yeah, I'd love to help because a lot of times they hate being perceived as this negative authority figure. They love helping. A lot of times the reason they became a cop is because they wanted to generally help. That's right. And the, and I love that, uh, you know, the, the way that you're pulling those two things together because, you know, one of the things that I say to, you know, employees, and these could be senior level employees, let's say somebody who reports to the CEO, I say to them, I say, look, there's nothing that the CEO wants more I promise you, then, then for you to go into their office and say, hey, here's what I've been working on. You know, here's, here's what we agreed on are the priorities. And this element over here, there's not a problem yet, but I'm worried that there could be. And I just want to get out ahead of that. And I, and I had a question for you. I want to see what your take is on this situation, right? That's what leaders want. They don't want to be nobody. Well, I wish I didn't say nobody. Most people don't want to be in that bad cop scenario. And that's exactly right is that what we, when we end up, when we put our, we put our leaders in that position, right? And, and we put our employees in that position. And this is what the biggest thing that I work with, with managers and executives on is that the, when you see somebody acting anxiously, acting strangely, acting like this is not the person that I hired. The reason why they're acting that way is because of authority. Not because you're a bad person, not because they're a bad person, but because there's some kind of weird, wonky, unspoken, unnamed, unresolved authority dynamic in the space between the two of you. And if you unwind that dynamic, all of a sudden you will get back the person who you hired, who you really love and care about, and they will get back the boss who they wanted to come and work for. And it's that dynamic in there. It's so powerful and it's so easy to lose sight of. But exactly as you said, people in leadership positions, that's the place that we want to be as leaders, but we find ourselves in this other place. And you know, and then, of course, the book is filled with strategies for how to get out of that place once you find yourself there. I use a very interesting word, acting. Do you feel that um, when you give somebody a new position, it has a, a specific word attached to it, like, you know, uh, marketing manager, or VP of marketing, suddenly it's saying, oh, now I have to be a marketing style guy. And, uh, you know, they've watched Mad Men. So suddenly, oh, I've got to start drinking. I've got to do this and that. And they have this. They don't know what that position um, actually entails as part of their personality or they don't believe that they're that type of person so now they have to act at being that type of person and and you know that's one of the hardest jobs in the world because if you get a job based on you really good at acting during interviews you're just basically setting yourself up for failure so I wanted to ask you is that the job of the the senior manager in charge of that person that's being put into that position to sit down with them ASAP and say, look, we understand you've come from the trucking division. We understand that you fought your way up to this position. We love you because of these three reasons. Can you use those three um, 
personality traits that you're so great at in this position and the hell with everything else. Exactly. And I think there's a, there, I love that. And I think that's, that's exactly right. And I would take it one step further, which is that the, the leader has to be able to say, you know what, half the time, I don't know what, I, don't, I feel like I don't know what the heck I'm doing either. <laughs> right. And that, because that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, modeling, right. The, those, the, because anybody who's entering in a new job, you, of course, you don't know what the heck you're doing. You've never had that job before, right? But if the CEO or the senior leader, whoever's hiring that person, projects this image of certainty and I have it all figured out, I'm telling you, I've talked with CTOs of massive companies and if you, if you, you know, CEOs, HR directors, you name it, doesn't matter, any industry, anywhere in the world, man or woman, any age. And if you really get to know that person, they'll all, they all say the same thing, me included, is, you know, half the time, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. It's changing so fast. There are so many moving parts. It's so complicated. I'm just doing my best to kind of keep my shoes on, right? And that's life in leadership. <laughs> yeah. And so if we open that up, right, people, we, we use these buzzwords around vulnerability and transparency and authenticity. That's vulnerably, that's vulnerable, vulnerable, authentic and transparent all at the same time as saying, you know what, half the time, and sometimes it feels like all the time, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. So that's why we're here and we're going to work this out together and we, and we can have a conversation about what this new job is going to look like for you. And we're not going to have one conversation. We're going to talk about this every week for as long as it takes because I want you to succeed. Mm. Well, you know, a lot of times when I'm uh, working with people on, you know, their marketing needs and, and whatever, um, it is a series of conversations. And I always have it at coffee shops and never have it at the office because that for them is a conversation zone. Well, this is the double-headed question, really. I mean, you, you've got the situation where uh, you've read this book, you kind of you have your aha moment, and it's like, oh wow, this yes, now I get it. How do you introduce that to the company you're working in so you can move within that company using this strategy compared to a company that's already like that? And how I mean, it must be much easier to to meld into it. So I think the uh, the best question is, how do you change a company to to be like this book? Well, I think that the that's a great conversation to start. I think it's a it's a really it's a great risk uh, to take with, you know, if you let's say you have a you know, you work for the CEO and you know, you're the head of sales and you read this book and you think, wow, this is really great. I'd love to be more like I love our organization to be more like this. You know, I think there's you know, there's not I mean, of course, it's self-serving to me, but it's only one book, uh, <laughs> you know, putting a book on their on their bookcase and saying, hey, you know, I'm reading this book and say, you know, there's some really interesting ideas in here. I would love to. I'd love to, you know, could you, would you open it and, and see what you think? And then I would love to schedule a half an hour to sit around and just talk about it. Maybe we can go out for a drink after work one night or, you know, go have lunch. Because I think there's some ways that this book, the ideas in here could really help. And I, I, and yeah, there's another one of my promises. As CEOs, CEOs are flooded with offers from co coaches and consultants. And, you know, we've got the next best thing that's going to, you know, change everything. But to hear that from somebody in their organization that's the kind of information that's hard to get. And so you're doing yourself a real service and your CEO will appreciate it. Uh, and then that's a, there's a great conversation to have. And also with peers, you know, a lot of managers and, that I know that I know these days, they do like Friday book clubs where they have their, you know, a Friday meeting. Maybe they, I don't know if they do it every week. I think they do it kind of a couple of times a month where they, you know, they read a chapter from the book and, or, or a book, not just my book, and then talk about it and say, you know, how are we, how are we not, behaving this way and what would it look like if we did and what's one step we can take to get a little bit closer 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole purpose of this podcast is people that are too busy that to have the luxury of, of reading multiple books to figure out which book has the great stuff in it. They can just listen to the authors talk about the book and say, wow, I kind of get excited about this conversation. Then they're not having to you know sift through five or six or seven books. They can just go grab the book, start reading it with the author's voice in their head, which is another big psychological difference between reading a book with your voice in the head and reading a book with the author's personality and voice in your head. It's like you're being mentored by the author compared to just reading stuff and thinking, eh, maybe I don't get it, I do get it type of thing. Yeah, the best compliments that I've gotten about the book, I mean, I, I love anything anybody has to say uh, <laughs> that's positive, I like, but the best compliments I've gotten have been, you know, I've, I read a lot of leadership books, but this one is not, a, this is not marketing your consulting practice. This is a, this book stands on its own. And these ideas are really strong. And I, I feel like I can make changes just by reading the book. And I don't have to buy a big, you know, expensive consulting package. And so that's, that's really nice to hear. Hmm. For you, um, what was your aha moment? Because, you know, you've been doing this a long time. You're taking your thoughts and your, your beliefs and your theories and you're putting it on paper. It solidifies when you do that. So for you, when did you get your aha moment or did you get multiple aha moments when you put the book together? There, there was one in particular that I talk about in the book. This was back in the kind of late 2014. This was when I was still at Emeth. Um, and I was feeling, I, I was just burned out. You know, I felt like I had I'd put my heart and soul into, you know, doing everything I could to transform that organization. And I just felt like, I just felt like I had nothing left. And, you know, I, st I loved the people on my team. It's some really, you know, just great, great people. And, and you know, I was mostly in charge of, of the marketing and sales initiatives at that point uh, in my tenure. And, and I just felt like I wasn't serving them. I just felt I was going home and I just felt like there were too many things that I, that I wanted to say that I wasn't saying. And I was struggling at home. I was struggling in my relationship with my wife and feeling like I was, I had become somebody else. I had become this business guy that even though I had spent my, you know, half my life, personal growth, spiritual seeking, meditation, yoga, you name it, you know, any experimental paradigm I could get my hands on, you know, I, I would try it to try to get to that, you know, amazing thing called off the authentic self. And I just felt like the things I was trying weren't working. And, you know, I was at a company that was, you know, at the top of the field in the coaching world. And I just said, you know, I don't know, there's something else. And so it was in that moment where I decided to ask some different questions of myself. I started to show up differently with my team. And, you know, in hindsight, it, it looks more linear than it actually was. It was very messy and chaotic for a couple of years. But out of that, out of that series of moments, I'll say, emerged a philosophy that, that, that became the book. Did you discuss the, your your new philosophy with people to to kind of like, oh, dude, I've just, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of this direction? Or did you kind of like let it uh, build up inside and and figure it out yourself? It was a little bit of both. It was it was mostly internal. Uh, I was mostly trying to capture the lessons that I that I felt like I had learned. But what I was I was working with a bunch of clients at the time that we were working with the kind of ten or twelve companies that we were working with at the time early on when I launched Refound, and I was really without explicitly saying so, I was testing the philosophy out. I mean, I was, they knew that that's what I was doing, but I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't like beta testing specific techniques. I was just introducing these ideas and in, in conversations with business leaders. And, and then they would, they were going and trying the ones that they, that they thought were 
interesting to them or good. And then coming back and saying, I, I can't believe this conversation that I just had. This was amazing. You know, how did you know to tell me that? And so I found these bridges between my experience and the experience that other people were having, you know, even though we were different people and different backgrounds, what people, what people kept coming back to me with was, Jonathan, there's just, there's a way that you say it, uh, that opens up the space. And I, and I kind of knew what to say, but I didn't know how to say it. And what you gave me, it, it, you know, it's almost, it's not a script, but there are kind of words and phrases and tones. And so I think a lot of, a lot of what I do with people, uh, showed up in those meetings. And then that's what became the book is kind of the, the subtle, the subtle art of management, let's say. Hmm. You, you know, it, it's, uh, it's interesting because you're, you're really talking about chapter nine and 10. I, I wanted to talk to you about, uh, micromanagement uh, reimagined because it's, I think it's, um, everybody hates micromanagement, but in some cases, it's something that has to be brought into place. And it's, it's, I use it as a threat more than anything else. It's like, dude, you know, here it is, here's your responsibility. If you cannot handle it, and if you're coming back and being irresponsible, I'll just micromanage the heck out of you as punishment. Um, <laughs> Can somebody, you know, use micromanagement in a better way? Or, or how does the book um, redefine micromanagement? What I'm trying to do is to show people that the, an effective way to, to micromanage or to focus on small things, let's say. Micromanagement is just, you know, you know if, you're, if you're building a computer processor, you better, ma you better micromanage the process, right? <laughs> but the, the, to, what people object to is the is the the repetition the nagging the did you get this did you get that when's that going to be oh there's a you know you forgot you you missed a period in that sentence and you know when they didn't get a chance to do their own proofing yet and things like that and what I try to work with leaders is it's not a it's not the attention that's the problem it's what you're putting your attention on and so instead of putting your attention on tasks and projects when you have that impulse the micromanagement impulse focus on a theme. Focus on emotion. Focus on how people are showing up. And then you can, you can quote unquote, micromanage in a way that is actually inspiring and empowering. And so when you, you know, when you see somebody wandering the halls of your office and you can tell that they're, they're, they're sort of not really, there's something going on with them and you pull them aside and you say, hey, you know, it seems like, is there something going on? You, you seem a little out of it today. That's that's great micromanagement from my perspective. That's going small. You could let it go. Is the business going to fall apart if you don't say anything, if you keep walking down the hall and do the normal sort of casual co eye contact without really making a connection with that person? No, the world's going to be fine. But if you take that moment, if you stop that micro moment and you say, you know, I want to do something that's a little differently here. And if you do that at the level of tone and theme and pattern and emotion, and the way people are showing up, that's the kind of micromanagement where people go like, wow, that guy really cares. That's really, you know, I've never had a manager actually ask me those kinds of questions before. And so that's the, the micromanager's redemption. Is, I mean, with everything, you can, you, can, uh, you can always run into people that are stick in the mud, that they're, they're not going to respond properly. At what point in time do you have to realize that this person is not a good fit for the way you're re-evolving the company? Very early. And, and I think, you know, the accountability dial, which is one of the most popular tools that's come out of the book, is really, you know, because what happens there is we see those things very early. We just don't act on it. And so when we see somebody who's not with the change project 
and I've been through this multiple times myself. I've I've learned, you know, maybe more lessons here than anywhere else, is to be able to have that conversation with someone to say, look, here's where we've been, here's where we're going. And you're, you know, you're saying the right things about wanting to be part of kind of the new culture, but I want to talk with you about some ways that you're not acting that way. And can we can we have a conversation about that? This is in the spirit of I want to help you get there. And so to get beyond those those conversations, oh, yeah, this is great. We're all on board. And you know that they're not. Instead of waiting six months and then firing them or getting frustrated or going home and talking to your you know, wife or husband or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, actually intervening in that moment and saying, look, I get that you want to be part of that new thing, but we, but there's some things that are happening right now that I'm, that I ha- I'm concerned about. And I want to help you get there. Can we talk about that? And so then having that structure, like we talked about before with the, you know, the police officer or the CEO, having that structure where they know that your office is a place where they can come and talk to you about their concerns. They don't have to toe the party line they, because they probably have some wisdom around, you know, some, some worry about the new way. And if you open up those conversations, they can bring their wisdom to that conversation and they don't feel shut down. Do you think a lot of times um, it, it's just general frustration that they've been in an organization, organization a long time, they're seeing, they've tried to make change, they've tried to make change, and then it, nobody ever follows through? Yes. You know, we, we try to do it, and gosh, now I'm going to waste a bunch of time. Jeez, they've kind of got that attitude, which I, let's tell every employee all the way from the truck driver all the way up to the CEO gets pissed off if they do something and then somebody undoes it. Right. And then here's another here's another big idea from the CEO that we're all going to supposed we're all supposed to, you know, you know, get with this new program like that hasn't happened 10 times in the last five years. Right. Or 10 times in the last 10 months. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of um, change fatigue. Right. People people don't have a lot of tolerance. And so how do you solve that? Do you try to push another initiative from the top down or as the as I'm advocating in the book is to talk to your team and say, hey, guys, look. I don't know what to do here because I still want to, I mean, there's still some things we need to change. And I realize looking back over the last year, we've been done nothing but change. Um, and this is, this is tough for me because I know that you guys are tired. I know that they're, that people are burned out. And, and so I want to talk about how do we introduce another change project in a way that actually gets some traction. Cause I, the last thing that I want to do is for you guys to feel like, oh, here comes another another big thing from on high that's gonna that he's gonna get bored with in two weeks, and then we're gonna have wasted a whole bunch more time. Right? This happens in so many organizations. Hard to find organizations where that doesn't happen. And so the process of change management starts with owning how terribly you've managed change in the past. <laughs> um, yeah, the, it's like a new management agreement. Basically, you know, okay, guys, I get it. And let's work together. I'm on board, but I want you guys to build this with me so we can fix the stuff that that needs to get fixed and not mess up the systems that are working for you. As long as those systems can be kind of tweaked a little bit to work with the new system, but you can do that whatever way you want. Really, at the end of the day, it goes all the way back to if you're a great manager, if you ask somebody to do X and they do it, but they do it in the way uh, that you would have wouldn't have done it, that doesn't make it wrong. That just means that they figured out how to do it a different way, and you should compliment on them. That's the secret wish of any good manager: is when I give you something, I don't want you to do it the way. I just had a theory. I just made it up, right? I just have. I just made a good guess. 
right? Because I got into the leadership position I'm, I'm in because I'm ma- I'm good at making guesses, <laughs> and you know, and I'm I'm good at making my my guesses sound convincing, right? And so I made a guess and I said, oh, let's go, you know, let's go try this, you know, piece of marketing automation. I don't want you to just take that and go and do it. I want you to go. Well, I looked at that one, but then I saw these other three ones and I compared them side by side, and I thought, hmm. I wonder if he's really wedded to this one because I think this other one for our business is far better. And those are the that's when you know that's when you, your life gets really good as an executive or a manager. And somebody comes back to you and says, "Okay, I took that idea and I found something better. And what do you think of this?" And then you go, "Oh my God, I love you. This is the best place ever." Well, the thing is that um, I I don't think most people that get into the um workforce are prepared for that type of reality. I mean, they've just gone to university. University um, has basically taught them not to do that. It's like you do the assignment. If you don't do the assignment, you get a low grade. If you don't do the assignment my way with my philosophy, you get a low grade. And that's one of the biggest problems with schools. They don't actually teach independence. They basically beat people down until they get their MBA and they're good at these 15 things, but they have no life experience, they have no business experience, and then they have to work with a company for five or 10 or 15 years until those um, teachings get morphed into their new style and then they become useful. It's, you know, it's fascinating. My wife is German. She's from Munich. And uh, she told me about a study that they're doing or a program they're doing where uh, I think it's in the in for-profit companies that they are proactively, HR departments proactively looking for university dropouts because of that phenomenon, because they're they're finding that people who made it all the way through university can't are, are basically incapable of taking creative risks. And uh, I think it's fascinating to see like how will the world of HR evolve uh, and how will universities evolve? Uh, hopefully, they will uh, down to you know down to primary school, where we where we reward nonconformity, and because that's what the world needs, right? Because robotics and computers, you know, all the automated tasks, right? The computers are are gobbling up anything that can be done by following the rules, right? And so, the, what the world needs, what cultures and leaders are looking for, are people who know how to bend them and break them when they need to be broken. Yeah, it's kind of ironic because, you know, you look at why do we have, um, why are we spending all this money on art and culture? Why, why, why are these kids not studying math and they're goofing around on the stage? And they just don't get that the ability to think on your feet and present yourself and be in front of an audience is a big skill set. And it's probably the most important skill set um, after the ability to sell and do a quick tap dance routine uh, to get out of trouble, if you if you don't have those fundamental skills, you're you're basically going to become a a drone in an organization. Yep, an eminently replaceable one. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the five employee archetypes. Sure, uh, you know this. I put this in the book at the end, and what I tried to do, you know, a lot of the book is about leaders and self identifying and understanding how how we are not embracing authority in productive ways and letting go of some of those old models. But what I tried to do at the end is talk about, you know, some of the, uh, uh, try to make a kind of a personality um, filter so you can look at different employees. And so there's a few of them we talk about, the provocateur, the protector, the pragmatist, I named them all P's just for fun. Um, And, you know, so if we use the provocateur, for example, one of those five employee archetypes, that's the person on the team who always thinks they have a better way, always has a, you know, well, why don't we, why aren't we doing it this way? They're always the one kind of interrupting and things like that. And you could look at that person as a problem, 
Or you could look at them as, wow, you know, this is somebody who, because they often do have good ideas, right? They just don't know how to, as you said before, they don't know how to present them in a way. They don't know how to talk about them in a way that brings people along. And so they make enemies and they, they isolate themselves. And so that's an example of once you understand those five personas, then you can mentor them. Then you can say, hey, you know, Tom, I love that you have these great ideas, but wouldn't it be great if more of your ideas got implemented? Yeah, I would love that because I feel like nothing, I come up with all these ideas and they never get done. Great. Let's have a conversation about how to present those ideas and how to do them, how to implement them in a way that respects other people's priorities and the way they manage their time and calendar because they, they don't flow with their day the way you do. That doesn't make you better or them worse. But you, let's let's figure out how we can work with your, you know, your desire for change. It's wonderful, but you have a, you have a certain relationship to change. Other people maybe have a different one, and so understanding how people relate with authority. Some people are very measured. Some people are very methodical. Those are beautiful qualities, and they can hold themselves back if they don't have if they're not in conversation with their manager about leveraging those qualities. And so that's what the the five personas are about, and uh, that I talk about in the last chapter. Uh, where should people go to learn more? And, and, you know, you've mentioned some pretty cool sounding tools. Um, should they go to your blog? Can they reach out to you on Twitter? Obviously, they're going to run out and, and, and go to Barnes & Noble or, or grab a, a book on Amazon. But what else can they do? The uh, All of the tools that I have are as part of a free email course when you sign up for our site. So our, our site is refound.com, R-E-F, like Frank, O-U-N-D. Dot com and uh, the the growth meeting guide and accountability dial and some of the other tools we talked about uh, today uh, that's all part of an intro series that you'll get and all those tools are free uh, as part of the the intro series and then uh, Twitter we have a, a Facebook group uh, it's a private group but if you are a CEO or business leader and you want to learn some more about these ideas but aren't yet ready to you know go into one of our programs or just kind of exploring the book uh, you can send me an email to hello at refound.com. And I'll send you an invite to that private Facebook group. Cool. Uh, before we got talking about the book, we also, uh, before we turned on the recorder, we talked about this management reboot program that you've got going. What's that mm. all about? Yeah, this is a, it's a really, I've been prototyping this new product, uh, if you will, which is a, it's a 90 minute, rather than a multi-month coaching engagement, it's a 90 minute coaching engagement where that comes in three parts where we talk about a specific problem actually have a meeting that I'm going to help you facilitate and then debrief and give you next steps. And it's a, it's very, very powerful. I've done it with a bunch of people so far. Uh, and you can find that at refound.com slash management reboot or the management reboot, either one. But it's a very powerful, concentrated way to transform the way you're leading in these ways we've been talking about in a 90-minute session that you work individually with me. Hmm. We've been talking with Jonathan Good authority, how to become the leader your team is waiting for. And man, this is gold, folks. Check out the book. It's definitely worth reading. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Bob. Thanks for listening. Please share this interview if you think your network of business friends would benefit from it. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite Android app. Also, don't forget to check out www.businessbooktalk.com for more business book interviews.